This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Hague. They were all instinctive storytellers. Under a Labour government, we'll reduce the price of butter. My father with his grocer's shop. Saying, look, we're on the radical centre, right? So if you want change, we're radical. If you want reassurance, we're on the centre ground. Can I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? We're talking to Steve Richards, the journalist and commentator, about his new book, the Prime Ministers. So thank you for joining us, Steve. Thank you for asking me. This is a book about leadership, and we will talk a lot about leadership, I think. Um, but let's let's uh, establish our parameters. It's it's uh, seen through the prism of the Prime Ministers and the Prime Ministers of the modern age. So starting with Harold Wilson. I'm going to have yeah. to tease you a bit here. By the modern age, do you mean in your lifetime when you remember? You, to be honest, yes. Um, <laughs> You know, you, there is a sort of artificial definition, which is these are the prime ministers who've sort of emerged in the television era and then through social media. But there were two other factors which contributed to this group uh, forming the book. One is exactly that. One way or another, I either knew them personally quite well or at the very least were aware of them and saw them somewhere and observed them directly. And the third one was I did this thing for the BBC where I gave unscripted talks to camera uh, on six of the prime ministers. And a lot of people emailed or tweeted saying you should turn that into a book. The the talks were based on there was a historian of genius, AJP Taylor, mm. who used to do this in the 70s. Now, he and he was did a, it un- completely unscripted. He was, well, so did I, to be honest. I know but did, yeah. the cheat for me compared with him was A, he he framed them just brilliantly. B, he could do it on anything. The origins of the First World War, the Crimean War, Bismarck. And they're still brilliant to this very day. You can watch them on YouTube. Um, Well, I cheated. I did it about people and the era I know about. But other than that, it was based on him. There was no script. You had to do it in one take. You had to uh, finish them on the second. And if you overran, you would have to have done the whole thing again. So, and <clears throat> I really enjoyed doing those. But so, but other people asked me to turn it into a book. So, so I did. So it's it's on that basis. Really. Well, yeah, but I mean, that was what I thought when when I first heard about it. Oh, aye, aye that's thrifty. Steve yeah. uh, turned these. Yeah. But it, the book's a lot more than that. You actually have quite a lot to say that that um, that uh, has a, a thesis that runs through the books and uh, and and compares all the, uh, the the figures in it. And essentially, I said it's about leadership, and 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 that's really what you're investigating, and and how far these prime ministers did uh, show the qualities yeah and you identify some of the qualities of leadership so i'm going to invite you now to let us run through some of those what yeah what, what I, and i would add one other need? theme which is that it's partly about how we choose to see these people and how often what we choose to see is not really what we're seeing at all um, that's one of your refrains which we, we see I, what we choose to see yeah and it's it's probably refrained too much but it is such a it's so important. And that, to be honest, it was the other reason I was quite keen to write it. I get very annoyed by modern commentary. It seems to me nearly always wrong. Uh, the way, so for example, just to snap any, I could do one from the current situation. But, you know, when the coalition was formed in 2010, nearly all the commentators said, wow, this is brilliant. Two parties working together. Look at this new vote. And Cameron said to me, I think we've achieved a realignment of the centre, centre-right, whereas there was a failure on as they were saying these things and commentators hailing them as these great figures they were making decisions that were going to lead to their demise 
in both the cases of Cameron and Clegg. And it was in front of our eyes that they were doing so. But for a time, us in the media chose to sort of go with cliches that weren't true and weren't happening in front of our eyes. And that happens to all these prime ministers. In terms of qualifications for leadership, they are hugely, hugely demanding. And none of these prime ministers, from Harold Wilson to Theresa May, met them all. But just to name two or three, as I wrote, I became very aware that the big election winners in our era, there were three of them, uh, Wilson, Thatcher and Blair, three wholly different characters. But they had one thing in common. They were all instinctive storytellers. They were in a constant dialogue with the electorate. And that, it seems to me, is not a bonus. It's not the deepest of qualifications, but it is an essential qualification. I of think leadership. Theresa May might agree with you because she and, lapped and, it almost well, wholly. Some of the short-serving prime ministers, not her actually, but Heath and Brown, uh, were deeper figures than the big election winners. Um, and yet they did not have that capacity to engage and be in a constant dialogue with the voters. So to give you an example of the election winners in each case, Wilson, for example, could reduce the complexity of uh, industrial relations in the early 70s when there was chaos. Uh, by a sort of problem, I'm just saying, uh, under a Labour government, we'll reduce the price of butter. And I was oh, I could do with cheaper butter, I'll vote <laughs> yeah. Labour. You know, and, and Thatcher... You know, it's very, it makes me laugh when people say Corbyn's policy on Brexit is incomprehensible. It's not. You could disagree with it. It's not incomprehensible. But Thatcher was advocating monetarism in the 79 election. Now, that was difficult to grasp, but she had a kind of, it was almost a genius to make it accessible, going around saying, my father with his grocer's shop never, ever spent more than he earned, and a country cannot spend more than it earns. Now, that's economic illiteracy, but very accessible illiteracy. And Blair would go around saying, look, we're on the radical centre, right? So if you want change, we're radical. If you want reassurance, we're on the centre ground. You know, And suddenly, you had brought in tons of people who would otherwise have hardly noticed. And that's what those three did. In contrast, Heath and Brown, who had a mastery of policy detail and a kind of driven integrity lasted for three years each and had two of the most traumatic of the premierships I cover. So depth of understanding is a qualification, but so is the capacity to make sense of what you're doing, even if it's nonsense. You also have to have an ideological coherence, which you then match to policies, which you then have to implement, and in doing so, keep a party together the media on board, and the wider electorate on board too. Um, now, some of these things, frankly, are almost impossibly difficult to do. And especially in a British context where politics is wild and unruly, there are so many constraints, the media is wild and unruly. And one of the other themes I noticed was uh, the great contrast between the misery that most prime ministers uh, feel most of the time, and a sense of powerlessness. And the perception, uh, John Humphreys, for example, very kindly endorsed the book, 
But his view always is of these prime ministers. But the reason I'm aggressive towards them is that they've got all the power and it's my duty to hold them to account. But most of the time, with the exception of Thatcher, the prime ministers didn't feel that powerful. They were just neurotically conscious of the constraints. And in a way, that makes them more interesting because they're tragic figures rather than figures of kind of arrogant swagger. Well, one of the one of the points you make is that the, the, all of these um, prime ministers desperately wanted the job, yeah. and it, it is it's the the top job in British politics. But the word nightmare figures in almost every yeah. chapter yeah. because almost all of them had a. a an appalling time of it. Yeah. Um, at, at least at some, some of them had a sort of honeymoon. Some of you, Harold Wilson. Most uh, of them have was, honeymoons. And um, they, during those honeymoons, think, wow, maybe I am special. Mm-hmm. And then something goes terribly wrong. Even John Major, who wasn't a conceited figure, when he won the 92 election, even though he feared that would be it, you couldn't win a fifth uh, as a party, thought, wow, well, you know, I've won this 92 election when nobody thought I was going to. Um, maybe I am quite special. And then the exchange rate mechanism happened and he was miserable. For John Major comes across almost as, as the anomaly in this book. Did he want the top job as much as all the other ones? Because you, you describe an aching for, for the, yeah. the success in, in almost all of these. Yeah. Major looked as though it wasn't quite the same thing and, and of course it was such a relief when he lost he went to the oval he, he's didn't the he, only for, one who was uh, happy and, afterwards and he looked <clears throat> relieved yeah to yeah. be watching cricket the day after the I, I think he did want it uh with, with a passion uh, by the time he got it um uh, he he worked journalists very intensively in, in the late 80s and i think he did want it and knew he might well get it um but he found it so hellish and tried to keep that party together again over Europe, um, that it was a relief when he could leave and go and watch some cricket at the Oval. Whereas some of the others, or it's not even a metaphor, literally shrink um, within weeks of losing that office. Uh, Harold Wilson aged very quickly. Um, so did Thatcher. Heath went um, into a 30-year sulk. And Heath was miserable for 30 <laughs> yes. years, having been miserable while he was Prime Minister. Um, and so they don't really get over it, and, and they don't really manage the departure. Uh, they're never ready for it. Only Wilson of the modern Prime Ministers chose the moment of his departure. He, by the way, I think is one of the more underestimated figures of modern times, a figure who won a referendum on Europe, a figure who held an unleadable party together, and a figure who chose the moment of his departure and, in effect, his successor. The others were all pushed out one way or another and hated it. That's one of the uh, w- one of the qualifications for leadership that you that you were uh, implying earlier on the the ability to manage your colleagues to to uh, deal with with uh, various factions and uh, and personalities and, and ambitions yeah. within within your party. And Wilson was very good at that. And Callahan was good. Uh, Callahan is a deeply unfashionable figure now. Most people won't even know who we're talking about. Uh, James Callahan, who uh, was prime minister yeah. between uh, seventy six and seventy nine. Um, Because I I finished the book during the May period. And if you remember, during the Theresa May period, cabinet ministers were resigning on an almost daily basis. Um, Now, Callaghan faced, uh, led 
uh, a cabinet of giants who didn't agree on anything from economic policy to defense to Europe and not a single one resigned over policy. He manipulated them all brilliantly. And I remember I, I chaired a discussion many years later when Callahan died with uh, three of them who had been in his cabinet, Tony Benn, Roy Hattersley and David Owen from the different Enormous wings. Enormous figures. Cabinet. And there was also, you, you had Huge the, figures, Jenkins and all paid tribute uh, to Callahan And um, Ben, who had blazing rows with Callahan at the time, said, when I look back at Jim, I recognise that he held people together. He let the left wing have its place in the cabinet, but he had to deal with the right. And Jim managed the cabinet really well. And uh, Owen and Hattersley nodded while... Uh, ben said that these old enemies. So he was brilliant. Uh, Cameron, who I think was by some margin the most shallow of modern prime ministers, the least developed, um, to give him credit, managed that coalition very well. He manipulated Clegg skillfully. Admittedly, Clegg was <laughs> up was for naive, manipulation. Though, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, he was so naive. But actually, Cameron in many ways was naive. Um, what Cameron did with that referendum was incredibly naive. Like, assuming Michael Gove would, Michael Gove told him, don't worry, David, I'll only make one speech during the referendum campaign, as if a senior cabinet minister, having come out for Brexit, would disappear for a month. But I think Cameron was quite naive, but he managed people really well. They all liked him. Same with Blair, actually, apart from Gordon Brown. Yeah. Most, <laughs> most people who work with Blair liked him. And that's a skill, because you're dealing with Big egos, some of whom want your job, want you to fail, uh, and ideological differences. You know, the ideology is a very important part of leadership. Let's talk about Cameron and that Brexit referendum. One of your rather brilliant party pieces in this book, and there are lots, is you compare him with Harold Wilson, who also held a referendum on Europe and won. Mm. And you suggest that if Cameron had looked back to uh, Wilson and learned the lessons, he might have he yeah. might have had a much better chance. Can can you do yeah, that? Can yeah, you do the I'm, comparison? It's one of the things I'm I'm pretty sure about actually that um, Wilson played very little part in the '75 referendum. He was neurotically self-aware in in some ways, uh, bad ways, but he knew that he was unpopular. And if it, if he made the referendum about him voters would just choose to give him a kicking by voting out. So you hardly saw it during the referendum. He also waited for the moment when poll after poll showed a huge lead for staying in. Um, and he did it very cleverly by drawing out the negotiations. And people forget with Wilson in 73, 74, there were big leads for out. Um, there was never a big majority for in when we did do it under Heath and, and in the years that followed. So he timed it brilliantly. He was aware of his own place in it. And he did this negotiation quite cleverly. It was a sort of renegotiate. He, he, he let his cabinet disagree. He called it the right to differ, which made it sound like a positive thing, but it was managing a nightmare. Um, now, Cameron did almost all the opposite. He mistimed it. He made it about him um, at a point when that austerity was really biting. Um, and the negotiation he carried out uh, began with this great flourish that he was going to get stuff on free movement and all this, and he didn't come back with anything accessible. The, the, the Wilson one, to go back to the butter, Wilson didn't do much, but it was something about 
This renegotiation means we can continue to get New Zealand butter at reduced prices. And it's sort of very accessible stuff. Um, and no one can remember Cameron's renegotiation. So the, there were big mistakes. And one of the problems with Cameron, he was obsessed with the glamour of Tony Blair and doing things in a Blair-like way. I, I, I did say to him at one point in the build-up, have a look at what Wilson did. I might as well have been speaking Latin because, of course, that's not a glamorous figure to look at. Um, and so uh, Cameron, for the sort of chaos that followed, I think he knows this. Uh, Cameron is deeply Oh, he must culpable. know that he blew it. But, of course, he had the problem that he'd, he'd had a couple of referendums already and, and won them. So he, he presumably thought referendums were his thing. It was a strong suit for him. I, I think he, he thought, as many prime ministers do, with good reason, they've got to the top when no one else does. He thought he was a winner. And the referendum on electoral reform, which no one can remember at all, um, he won easily. And the Scottish one was much more nerve-wracking, and that should have made him think again. But he had already by then made the pledge to hold the Yeah, but he was a gambler, wasn't he? And he, yeah, he, he was. gambled on the Scottish one and won. So he, he, he presumably thought that his gambler's luck would well, hold. As I think I put in the, the book, no prime minister offers a referendum on the assumption they're going to lose. <laughs> so he thought he was going to win. And that's why he held it. He didn't have a passion for direct democracy. Yeah, he but thought you he think that about win. elections as well. Um, you were talking about getting to the top. I'm absolutely fascinated by Theresa May. Mm. And she's she's a, a sort of unglamorous figure. And yet I, I find her just utterly compelling. She, she's not an obvious prime minister. And yet no. y you make clear that she desperately wanted the job since she was 15. Yeah, um, yeah or, or certainly by in her early 20s, with a passion, she wanted the job. As yeah. far as I can see, she was an utter failure. I think she yeah. was probably not the most destructive, but certainly the most dismal prime minister we've ever had. Um, am I right? Is that fair? I think she was the least suited to any of the demands that we've been talking about. In Britain, um, most prime ministers are performers. They're partly actors. And although... Uh, if you ask voters about that, they would be disdainful in theory. In practice, they like and need the performance. And as we know from that 2017 election, she couldn't perform. Um, and she couldn't communicate or convey what she was doing. There was a case to be made for her Brexit deal. <clears throat> and by the way, it was a better deal than the Boris Johnson oh, deal. Oh, God, yeah. She never made it. Can you think of a single phrase that she uttered that conjures up a positive uh, evocation of her deal. All you can remember is that uh, the Chequers deal, she said, you don't, if, if you don't back this, this uh, deal, you, your car back home That's is, right. is, is cancelled yes. to, the, to the cabinet. So they, That's what who, we remember. Anyone who resigned would have to wander around the fields and yeah. woods of Trying to get a, a phone signal to phone an Uber. <laughs> to get an Uber back. Yeah. Um, but that's what but, we remember. That's the, that's the point you're making. Nobody remembers what her but deal But she was also, was. so she didn't, she wasn't a communicator. She couldn't manage people. She didn't understand people. Um, and so that's why a lot of these resignations happened. She, she then lost really all authority by losing her party's tiny majority in that election. Um, and then she did something, <clears throat> one of the other uh, arts of leadership is just to be aware of how much you can get away with at any given time. Thatcher was very good at it. Quite early on, she was cautious. She appointed to very senior posts people she completely disagreed with, 
the so-called economic wets, like Jim Pryor, Ian Gilmore, people who frankly were to the left of Tony Blair, were in very senior positions in her first cabinet because she didn't feel powerful. Then when the SDP was formed, she won that Falklands War, she knew she had space. And that's when she brought Norman Tebbit in and people like that. May, at the beginning, this is the forgotten part of her period. She was 20 points ahead in the polls. People were terrified of her. They were talking of the May era lasting for 20 years. And at that point, she acted weakly. So she told her party what it wanted to hear on Brexit. You know, it could have its cake and eat it. We'll have all our red lines, but continue to be close to Europe. And, and at that point, she could have said, um, right, this is tough. You need compromise. We might have to negotiate with the Labour Party. Instead, when she was strong, she acted weakly. And then at the very end, when she was pathetically weak, she did all those things. So why? Why did, why did she not see that? And one of your themes is actually seeing how much room you've got for manoeuvring yeah, on yeah. the political she, stage. She wasn't and a reader some, of the... Some of them do and some of them don't. Is it just as yeah. simple as that? Well, most... Uh, yeah, who was... The ones who were good at that were Wilson, Thatcher... Cameron created a lot of space with the coalition and used it for Unexpectedly, his... actually, because he didn't yeah. when he when he didn't win the election. And, and and got a lot of his radical I, I regard him as a figure of the radical right, not the centre. And he got a lot of radical right things through. Um she she didn't really understand politics. It's it, it, you're right, it's curious that she wanted it so much. And I've just read a book by um Anthony Selden on on May's period. And he confirms that, that in vivid detail. He says that she, what she loved was things like the weekly audience with the Queen. He calls it the trappings of power. She really enjoyed all of that. That's, but she didn't. That's so she shallow. Didn't it's one of the, you know, she said when she sacked George Osborne, you need to go and get to know the Conservative Party well. She didn't really get it. She understood her constituency and was wholly at home in Maidenhead going to church. And she had been a long-serving Tory Home Secretary, yeah. which is unusual. Yeah. So th perhaps that gave her some sense that she had more exactly more feel for it than she really did. Yeah, it, that was a genuine success to last in that. The Labour Home Secretaries lasted on the whole about five minutes. Mm. Do you remember that period? There was John Reed and then somebody else, somebody else. No, you um, remember. Nobody else no, does. No. It wasn't that long ago. But she lasted for six years. Uh, in, in that tough job. But it's an atypical job. It's not about the economy. It's not about public services. Crucially, it's not about Europe, apart from security, which is the easy bit of the Europe relationship. And so she suddenly arrived having to deal with Brexit, having never given Europe much of a thought, let alone Brexit. And she was hugely shaped and defined by her two special advisors, who were, you know, there's a lot of talk about Dominic Cummings with Boris Johnson, Alistair Campbell with Tony Blair. Um, her two advisors, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, were the two most powerful uh, special advisors in number 10 in the last 100 years. Um, because Nick Timothy was ideological, very interesting figure, I think. Um, he was, everyone wrote that May was to the right of Cameron. That was completely wrong, because Nick Timothy, in economic terms, uh, was... Uh, sort of Ed Miliband in some respects. He believed the state should intervene in markets. And she went around saying, it's time to talk about the good that government can do. Now, that was Nick Timothy, not her. And, the, and then when he, she had to sack Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, there was nothing. 
um, you know, an empty vessel. Um, so she had these advisors to define her, but beyond that, there was no definition. And the Home Office, you're absolutely right, doesn't really prepare you for power. It's quite unusual to be Home Secretary well, you, and then straight into number 10. But what does, you You, you again make the point that, it, um, probably with the two Prime Ministers, best prepared or at least best qualified from from their from their political history were Ted Heath and Gordon Brown yeah. and and yet they had a torrid time torrid. and didn't manage to win an election. They had you know, yeah, short-term they, they prime ministers. And I, I, um, I find Gordon Brown a much more uh, sympathetic and impressive figure than than he's usually given yeah, credit for. Yeah, me too. For. Me too. Um, I, I'm, I, I always think the time will come when the world yeah. says, thank God for Gordon. But it's not happened yet. No, it, no, it hasn't because it was so torrid and there were attempts to get rid of him every five minutes internally, which is an early sign of the... Uh, trauma that Labour was then to go through. Um, but I think it will be recognised that uh, I think his period as Chancellor will be looked at again um, uh, because there was a sort of cliche that Blair was the great crusading radical reformer and he was this cautious, miserable sod in the Treasury trying not to do anything. He was actually a radical reformer. Um, and... His period in number 10 will, was torrid, genuinely torrid, and he couldn't rise to the uh, demands of, apart from that global crash in 2008. I mean, and no, his response was epic. I mean, if you think about what followed when Cameron and Osborne got in, you know, the real-term spending cuts and things, he persuaded the likes of Merkel and others, admittedly with the help of Obama on his absolute glittering high, having just got in, uh, to uh, increase public spending. It was a sort of Keynesian response to the global crash, and it worked. And when that, um, who, who's that Nobel Prize winner? Paul Krugman, Krugman yes, yeah. uh, wrote in the New York Times, he saved the world, and he accidentally And the cheerleader. Uh, yeah, but I, exactly. Yeah, but I don't, I don't blame Brown for being, because most of the time he read in the British press, he was mad, useless, hopeless. And suddenly you read he'd saved the world. No wonder it made an impact. Um, so I think he was big, but so was Heath. I mean, Heath was a miserable kind of, he, he spent a year once without giving a single interview. He didn't feel any obligation to make sense of what he was doing. But whether you're a Brexiteer or a Remainer, it was a big achievement to get Britain into the then common market. Harold Macmillan, who was a big figure, not in this book, uh, tried. Actually, Heath was his negotiator. Didn't do it. Wilson well, that, that's, wanted well, that's to do That's what you're it. saying. Heath had a, a brilliant ministerial career. Yeah. And, and seemed to think that having had a successful ministerial career was uh, a, a reasonable preparation for being a successful prime yeah. minister. And I contradict myself because clearly those two, on one level, weren't successful. But I do also think that Blair and Cameron, if you want to understand them, uh, having neither of them having served in any ministerial post whatsoever is part of the reason. Uh, uh, <clears throat> it makes sense of them. You've got another theme, though, about uh, how you get the top job as well. The, 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 these uh, characters, some of them who, who, who make it, weren't expecting it or at least they weren't wait yeah. leaders in waiting which and being a leader in waiting is, is is death isn't it especially on the labor side there's a terrible dark theme that the two labor leaders who've done best 
got the job when their predecessor died suddenly and unexpectedly. Gateskill for Wilson, for Wilson and John Smith John for. Smith for Blair. Because neither of those two had been burdened by endless speculation about would they make a move for the leadership? What would they be the next leader? Because all the media and everyone else assumed Gateskill would be around for ages and Smith would be around for ages. Suddenly the vacancy arose. They got it quickly. It was halfway through a parliament. Uh, the next election was moving into view. And they both moved with the speed of sound. They were both brilliant leaders of the opposition and, and won elections. All Labour leaders who get the job at the beginning of a parliament lose the subsequent election. It's all too long and fraught. So uh, Neil Kinnock said to me at one point, people were just fed up seeing him fighting his party, fighting militant, doing the what? You know, uh, Gordon Brown said that you, political leaders have a shelf life of about, about seven, seven years. years. Yeah, and of course Gordon had, had been chancellor been for ten ever. Yeah, by the time he got he, there, he thinks. I mean, it's it's a bit of an excuse because he could have done more uh, to make himself to project himself in a certain way. But yeah, people were bored with him when he arrived. Now, actually, that's not wholly true because he had a honeymoon. Yeah, he did have, and and if you remember, there were uh, there were crises. There was a like a foot and mouth yeah. crisis, or Northern Rock nearly and went things. bust. And and he 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 actually performed really well. Yeah. Until he dithered about the election, about an early. Well, that election. is another theme. It's interesting. We're talking now in the, in the context of an early election, and they are dangerous. I mean, I, who knows what's going to happen. Is this going to go out before the election, or is this? Or should we not? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh no, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. So who knows what will happen in this uh, early election? Our many listeners in the future will know. But. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. So they'll know whether the pattern has been broken or followed. Mm. But the pattern, until now, anyway, is that they are dangerous, and prime ministers call them and lose all control. But presumably prime ministers or, don't call elections call unless they expect to win. <clears throat> no, but then they don't always. I mean, Heath called one in February 74, posed the question, who governs Britain? And the answer came back, not you. Yeah. And he was never in power again. Then Gordon Brown contemplated one after that honeymoon, you know, joyful kind of scenes wherever he went. And then when he decided not to hold it, because suddenly it loads fatal. of marginal polls suggest he might not win. He never recovered. And he, more to the point, he knew he was never going to recover. And then Theresa May called an early election and lost, lost a majority. Lost a majority. Yeah. So they are really dangerous devices. But um, Boris Johnson has broken many rules. So if those listening hear this in a context that he's won, maybe there's an example of another one. But he, he breaks a lot of the kind of rules of leadership. Really. Well, one of them is, you, you, you make the point in your book that all of these prime ministers have been fundamentally decent people. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, we've got more of that. But they, yeah, they, they all thought from their perspective uh, that they would, to quote that awful phrase of Blair's, uh, it was the right thing to do. Now, I disagree. I mean, I don't put all this in the books. It's not about me. But I disagree about many of the consequences of Thatcherism. Mm. But she unquestionably was driven by a kind of ideological sense of purpose, which propelled her and for many years. And yeah, I think she, she thought she was transforming. She certainly she was the change maker of these prime ministers. And that is whether you agree or disagree with the change massively impressive now boris johnson is more obviously um 
roguish because we know, for example, he lies or has lied. His private life is chaotic and and has behaved in a hung parliament before the election in a quite extraordinary way, sacking. He's turned people like Philip Hammond into a sort of revolutionary figure. I now call him our Che Guevara, <laughs> Philip Hammond, you know. And um, by sacking all those people, normally a prime minister in a hung parliament woos everybody because they need the numbers. And on one level, it's been, it is quite effective because I wondered what he would do when he called an election when all these prominent figures disowned the section on Brexit. Well, that hasn't happened because he's got rid of them. Yeah. Um, That's so, true. So maybe he will prove to be a brutally effective leader. But it's certainly a break with... So I, <clears throat> I don't think, for example, uh, Blair was a war criminal in the same way I don't think Corbyn is an anti-Sema. I think these lapses into sort of sweeping judgments of malevolence rarely is A, the most interesting way of looking at these people, or B, close to getting them right. Um, so you know, Blair became trapped in the Iraq war. It was a catastrophe. But the, the way a normally agile figure became trapped is much more interesting than to say, here is someone who was deranged and broke every law in the book because he wanted to invade Iraq. Because if you think about it, that doesn't quite add up. You know, this cautious figure who wanted to please everybody, who worked tirelessly for peace in Northern Ireland, suddenly becomes this craze. It, it, in my view, it's all about a fear of breaking with America, a fear of not being seen standing shoulder to shoulder with Bush. Now, these are all things to condemn. But it's a much more, if you kind of try and work, well, how does that fit with all the other stuff he did? And it's all about a fear of the 1980s and losing elections and having to do the opposite of, and similarly, so, so, so if Johnson is a kind of Trump-like rogue, that really is, I think, a break with the past. We don't, I put if because we just don't know yet. He hasn't done it long enough. Well... A large part of the purpose of the book is to um, correct and explode those easy caricatures, which, so, yeah. it, which it does uh, beautifully. <coughs> um, Steve, it's, it's uh, an absolute joy to read. It's uh, The Prime Ministers by Steve Richards, and it's Atlantic Books, and it's £20. Steve, thank you very much. Tim, thank you. That was The Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.